Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Nielsen Show. We are Monday morning, December 20th. Christmas is right around the corner. Hopefully you got all your shopping done. And uh, I guess for today's announcement on a business, just how about any of your local small businesses? I know it's easy to go to the big box stores because they're the only ones that seem to be able to get anything. Oh, well, the little guy sits there and has to struggle. So if you can, please patronize your local small business. A lot of your mom and pop places, especially uh, any of any of them that are restaurants. Because, well, we all know how this has all gone down with the COVID stuff. So if you can, you want to take the family out, just, uh, you know, see what kind of small local businesses look good. Not your big... Uh, chains you know i mean everybody everybody's still going to mcdonald's and all those places so if you can find your local mom and pop store uh pizzeria or whatever i'm sure they would appreciate your business and uh i think that's where we're at right now so here in just a second we'll get right back to it and we will start the program with all the latest news updates um, and some interesting things that maybe might get you fired up like it did me, but maybe not. I don't know. We'll see. Come back. All right. I guess to start this off, possibly on a uh, good news, I, I would say. <laughs> White House Mansion went back on his word by not voting on the Biden spending bill. Um, so this latest one is another behemoth of like $1.9 trillion, you know, that just spend, spend funny money. I don't, I mean, realistically, our money hasn't been worth anything really for a long time other than the faith that we'll keep buying goods (laughs) with it, (laughs) uh, which won't surprise me eventually. If the dollar collapses and they just go to a digital currency, which then that way the Federal Reserve can just manipulate the money worse than they already do now. Anyways, this article is out of the Epic Times uh, from the 19th of this month, or I guess that was yesterday. Uh, It goes, the White House said that Senator Joe Manchin went back on his word when he announced Sunday that he will not support President Joe Biden's mammoth Build Back Better spending package, likely imperiling the measure. Thank goodness. Quote, Senator Manchin's comments this morning on Fox are at odds with his decisions this week with the president, with White House staff, and with his own public utterances. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said in a statement on Sunday after Manchin earlier told Fox News that he won't vote in favor of the legislation. Oh, he's a right winger now if he's going on Fox News. In the 50-50 Senate, Manchin's vote is crucial. Democrats had sought to pass the $1.9 trillion spending package via budget reconciliation coming days after the House passed a version of the legislation, citing high inflation, rising numbers of COVID-19 cases being reported, and the country's staggering $27 trillion national deficit. Manchin said that if he voted in favor of the bill, it would not be, quote, genuine as far as my constituents in West Virginia. Manchin further said he believes the measure will cost far more than what the Congressional Budget Office and legislative caucuses have calculated. The senator, senator argued that the bill uses legislative tricks to make it seem like it would cost less than what it actually does. 
Quote, what we need to do is get our financial house in order, but be able to pay for what we do and do what we pay for, Manchin said in the Fox News appearance. But Saki, in the lengthy statement, claimed Manchin, who for months opposed a larger version of the bill, went back on his word in private discussions with Biden and other White House officials. Comment, or if his comments on Fox and written statement indicate an end to that effort, they represent a sudden and inexplicable reversal in his position, Saki said, and a breach of his commitments to the president and the senator's colleagues in the House and Senate. Okay, so why is it up to the White House to determine what this senator and his constituents and voters that vote him in want, other than they're just being big babies? He said he would vote for it, and now he's not. Uh. Thank goodness. Senator Manchin pledged repeatedly to negotiate on finalizing that framework in good faith, Saki said, adding that he met with Biden at the White House about five days ago and put forth a written outline for a Build Back Better bill that covered many of the same priorities as Biden's proposal. The Congressional Budget Office report that the senator cites analyzed an unfunded extension of Build Back Better. That's not what the president has proposed, not the bill the Senate would vote on, and not what the president would support. Senator Manchin knows that the president has told him that repeatedly, including this week, face-to-face, she said. Other than Saki, left-leaning Democrats in Congress sharply criticized Manchin on Sunday. Rep. Elon Omar, Democrat from Minnesota, a member of the leftist squad in the House, tweeted that Manchin's excuse is expletive and that the people of West Virginia would directly benefit from child care, pre-Medicare expansion, and long-term care, just like Minnesotans. Um, so yeah, if there's all that stuff in there, it's basically slowly taking over health care. And uh, I don't know if I've said it on this program before, but I've said it to plenty of other people. It's like, if you want government-ran health care, uh, go to the VA, join the military. Because it's only going to drive up costs like it does with everything else the government gets its hands in. And it eventually gets just as crappy because nobody's held accountable. Uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, a self-described Democrat socialist, alleged Manchin does not have the guts to stand up to powerful special interests by voting for the bill. Sanders did not elaborate on who those powerful special interests may be. The White House... House will continue to apply pressure on Manchin to see whether he will reverse his position, Saki said. Manchin's office did not immediately respond to a request for comment. (laughs) That's the state of affairs that our government is in these days. Um, And we also have quite a bit of uh, what they call the breakthrough cases. So supposedly there's a big... uh, Royal Caribbean cruise liner, which everybody has to be vaccinated to get on to. Um, I don't remember where they came back, what port or whatever they're in, but there's a huge outbreak of COVID <laughs> on a on a boat that should be 100% vaccinated. So they keep wondering, I mean, they keep lying, first of all, I mean, if they would have just came out the gate, you know, from the get go. And just told us the truth about stuff instead of just flip-flopping all over the place. Now I get it. The science is going to change. But realistically, they just, uh, they didn't know. But they were telling us stuff like they knew. Like, oh, this is what it is. And you need to do this. And you need to do that. And it's most of it hasn't worked out the way they claimed it was supposed to work out. 
So, let me see here. Got a couple other stories here saved up. Uh, where am I? What the heck? Oh, yeah. So, we got another thing about, uh, you know, I don't know why this is such a big deal for Democrats that, you know, states want to clean up voter registration rolls, um, you know, when they do an audit of them. Surprisingly, there ends up being a lot of dead people on the rolls. So they throw a big fit that they want to clean up the rolls and get the dead people off the list because <clears throat> most people know that dead people always vote Democrat somehow, some way. I don't know, from the grave. They just send mail in their ballot. So this one is a court fight over dead people on voter lists heats up in Michigan. How many dead people should remain on Michigan voter rolls? answer may be determined by a federal judge. I would say zero. If they know they're dead, there's death certificates that confirm this person is dead, you should be cleaned off the voter roll. <laughs> I don't know why that's so hard to, you know, why does that have to go to court? I mean, that should be both sides saying, hey, you know, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's clean up the voter rolls. The Public Interest Legal Foundation on November 3rd sued Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat, for allegedly failing to remove from the state's voter rolls the names of 26,000 registered voters who have either died or moved away. That uh, That's the part I don't get. If you move out of your district or you move out of that state, you should not be on the damn voter rolls. I don't get what their problem is with this. Other than unless you want to keep them on there so you can cheat. Why else would you want that to happen and not be cleaned up? Anyways, according to PILF President J. Christian Adams, the failure to remove the names creates an opportunity for fraud. Oh, imagine that. The lawsuit also alleges that 334 people registered to vote after they died, with 15 of those registrations occurring in 2020. Benson's office said they do not comment on pending litigation. However, Tracy Wimmer, a spokesperson for Benson, told Fox News, Michigan maintains its voter registration list in accordance with all state and federal laws. Okay, we'll then change the laws so you can clean up the voter rolls. Quote, as we've seen throughout the past years, meritless lawsuits serve as press releases for those seeking to further election misinformation and undermine American democracy, Wimmer said. And that's the excuse they keep using all the time. The Office of the Michigan Attorney General filed a response to PILF's complaint and a motion to dismiss the case on December 13, 2021. In the reply, Benson denies any failures to perform list maintenance activities required by federal law. Her lawyers point out that the National Voting Rights Act requires only that a state conduct a general program and make a reasonable effort to remove the names of ineligible voters from the official voter registration list by notice of death, change of residence, or the voter's request. Okay, so they're basically putting it back on the people that registered to vote, saying that, oh, well, if they died and they didn't send us a notice to take them off the list, so we got to leave them there. <laughs> oh, boy. The NVRA does not require a state enact an exhaustive program to remove every voter who becomes ineligible, wrote Benson's counsel. <clears throat> okay, so if you just don't ever do it, of course, that list is going to get bigger and bigger, and it's going to get harder and harder to go through the rolls. So why not just do it every year and get it over with and keep the list small so you don't end up with this huge estimate? I mean, 26,000? That's freaking crazy. 
and how many states are have got roles like this because the government there in those states just hasn't done anything for who knows probably decades. Uh, the complaint alleges that when more than 25,000 deceased registrants are identified on the qualified voter list and not removed for an extended period of years, the list maintenance program is not only unreasonable, it is failing. The NVRA does not simply require a percentage or portion of dead registrants to be removed. It requires a program that actually detects dead registrants and removes them. Among other requests, PILF is asking the court to require Benson to remove the names of deceased voters from the rolls and to order her to allow inspection of records pertaining to the implementation of programs and activities used in cleaning up the voter list. Adams said the numbers speak for themselves and is confident the suit will survive the motion to dismiss. And I think we've been keep hearing that across a bunch of different Democrat states. That just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And they wonder why people on the right are saying, hey, we need these election integrity laws and we need to go through and clean up our voter rolls. Had the same thing here in Utah happen. Uh, I don't remember who the representative was. Uh, pat, or put a bill forward to do the same thing, just uh, an election audit. And the Democrats, even here in the state of Utah, flipped out about it. And it doesn't make any sense if you are keep saying that, oh, yeah, we're for voter integrity, but you don't want to audit the system and make sure it's actually fair, both sides. And you throw a fit about it getting audited and dead people getting taken off the rolls, making sure everything's legit. I I just don't get that. Not only are you being a, a, a super big hypocrite, you're not really being honest. So you tell me, I mean, is that is that what the voter base wants too? If you if you're a Democrat, does you want this possibility possibility of cheating going on? During elections, just so your your person wins, because as far as I know, you don't really see a, a whole lot of any Republicans, you know, handing in ballots for other people that may or may not still be alive. The, the a lot of the voter fraud you end up seeing, at least that I've read, is usually somebody that's a Democrat doing the cheating. So. I mean, I can see, I guess, for the Democrats, why they don't want to, because it benefits them. So I don't know. I I digress on that one. But, I mean, that's the whole thing that, that we still haven't really seen a whole lot of answers from, which there might have been a lot of smoke being blown up or uh, from the 2020 election about voter fraud. Because uh, as far as I know, we haven't really seen anything concrete on it. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure some fraud happened and it really, you know, baffles me that, uh, our president now got as many votes as he did, especially being as unpopular as he is. Um, I've, I have read stories though, that, uh, some of these places were destroying records and stuff, shredding ballots, uh, different things like that, the stuff they're supposed to be preserving. So realistically, with the evidence gone in a lot of these cases, we may never have an answer, uh, a legit answer, if you ask me. Um, let's see, what else have we got here? Um, 
Oh man, where did I? You know, I'm gonna have to take a quick break here and find out where my other articles are because I got a couple other ones that really are starting to fire me up. Um, Congress in general, uh, and they wonder why their approval rating is so low. <laughs> uh, I'll take a quick break. I'll be right back. All right, we're back. This is the the article that got me all fired up the other day. Uh, So this is from December December 15th uh, from the Epic Times. Pelosi defends stock investment by members of Congress. We're a free market economy. So it's okay for Congress, in her mind, to basically do insider trading. They have information that benefits the stock market, especially with laws they pass. So it's it's basically a mafia is what our Congress, for the most part, has turned into. So they, they think they are the supreme leaders of the world, and we're the peasants, basically. So this article goes on. At a weekly press conference, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat from California, Defended stock market investment by members of Congress after an investigation by an insider alleged that 49 members of Congress have violated laws against insider trading. Uh, And this, I'm pretty sure there's some Republicans in there, too, that are doing this. Like I said, they wonder why they get called the swamp. U.S. law forbids people with insider information, including members of Congress, from buying stocks on the basis of that information. And those who break these laws can be subject to criminal prosecution. Laws against congressional insider trading were strengthened in 2012 amid a wave of insider trading in Congress. The Stock Act, or Stop Trading on Congressional Knowledge Act of 2012, placed limitations and new reporting guidelines on federal lawmakers. So... I guess that didn't do much to deter these people because they're still doing it. (laughs) And none of them have ever been charged for it as far as I know. Most critically, the law began requiring members of Congress to disclose trades made by themselves, their spouse, or their dependent children publicly and quickly. Insider's report found that a large bipartisan swath of 49 members in both chambers had violated these laws. These include, among many others, Big names like Senator Dianne Feinstein, Tommy Tuberville, Republican from Alabama, and House Reps Debbie Wasserman Schultz, uh, Debbie Wasserman, uh, Democrat from Florida, and Dan Crenshaw, Crenshaw, Republican from Texas. You know, and I used to actually used to like that guy, but he's kind of going off the rails lately. Uh, In light of this report, Pelosi was asked by a reporter whether Congress members should be barred from stock trades. No, Pelosi said quickly, we have a responsibility to report our trades. And if people aren't reporting, they should be. Um, press, Press to explain her no, Pelosi argued, because we're a free market economy. Members of Congress should be able to participate in that. Um, not while you're in office. You create laws and have a lot of inside information on what's going to happen with certain laws. So, just like all this, I mean, how many of these people invested in all of these vaccine companies, these drug companies, before the vaccine came out and it was, you know, 
I, I see why they're pushing it on everybody because the more more of these doses go out, the more these companies make money and the higher the stock prices go. So if you're invested in that and you bought early, you know, you've seen stuff coming down the pipeline and are probably making millions of dollars off of these investments. But the rest of us out here can't do that because we don't have that knowledge. And if we did and got it from somebody inside and it was found out, we go to jail. So once again, they don't, they're in their own little bubble. Uh, they wonder why, you know, people are pissed off at them. Um, while Speaker Pelosi's name did not appear in the report, Pelosi and her husband have made millions from stock trading since she has been in office. In fact, the Pelosi's have been so successful in their stock trades that small-time investors on the social media platform TikTok begin a trend of following the Pelosi's financial releases and copying their trades to make money. But others see the Pelosi's trades as more problematic in view of Speaker Pelosi's significant power and access to non-public information that could affect the stock market. For instance, in July, just as the House was trying to advance antitrust legislation targeted at tech monopolies, Paul Pelosi made a bullish bet in favor of Google parent company Alphabet, while others were pulled out, pulling out over concerns about the House's pending legislation. This ultimately pay, paid off for Pelosi, netting him $5 million. The antitrust bill received bipartisan support, and despite being marked up, voted on, and passed through the House Judiciary Committee, action on the bill suddenly stalled, and it has sat in congressional limbo since June. Nancy Pelosi's spokesperson quickly denied any allegations of insider trading, saying, quote, The Speaker has no involvement or prior knowledge of these transactions. Um... Uh, I would say that's a big fat lie. Uh, that's the thing; these people lie to us. We know we, we have public information. We have the internet that is freaking pretty good at you know picking apart these lies. Um, and these allegations against Pelosi and her husband are nothing new. In 2011, NBC's 60 Minutes aired an episode that accused several prominent lawmakers, including Pelosi, of insider trading. According to that report, Paul Pelosi bought $2 million in stock in Visa in March 2008. Later the same year, the House Judiciary Committee passed legislation that would have addressed card issuer swipe fees, a bill that would have hurt the bottom line of big-name card issuers. But that bill was also suddenly and inexplicably dropped and was never brought to the House floor. Hmm, that's weird. Observers at that time accused Pelosi of using her influence as Speaker to snuff the bill, a charge she vehemently denied. Not long after this report, Congress passed the Stock Act, which included the so-called Pelosi Provision, a clause that forbade members of Congress from receiving early access to private stock offerings simply because of their position. Um, that can still happen, no matter. So that's probably why they still do it, because the Stock Act really doesn't, you know, unless somebody's in there tattletelling on each other, you know, they're not going to lose their cash cow. Um, in December 2020, Paul Pelosi bought 25 call options in Tesla, one of the leading electric vehicle manufacturers worldwide. Both during the campaign and after being declared victor, President Joe Biden emphasized the importance of EVs in his administration's efforts to reduce U.S. carbon emissions. Since then, Speaker Pelosi has been outspoken in support of the Build Back Better bill, which includes, among other climate provisions, hundreds of billions in funding for EV tax credit. 
and an EV charging station network. The purchase, and that's probably what's in this other $1.9 trillion bill is all these charging stations that have got to be built nationwide uh, to really make that the EV vehicle a reality. The purchase quickly raised some eyebrows as commentators considered the ethics of such a purchase ahead of Biden's pro-EV regime. Pelosi's position on members of Congress trading is far from a universal position among those in her party. In a December 7th tweet, Rep. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called it absolutely ludicrous that members of Congress are allowed to dabble in the stock market, suggesting that the power members of Congress have to access information uh, gives them an unfair advantage in the market. Well, duh. Quote, the access and influence we have should be exercised for the public interest, not our profit, Ocasio-Cortez wrote. It shouldn't be legal for us to trade individual stock with the info we have. That's the smartest thing I think I've heard come out of that girl's mouth. In a statement given to Insider, Progressive Senator Elizabeth Warren expressed much the same sentiment. Quote, we need to... We need both tougher laws and enforcement of those laws, Warren said. The American people should never have to guess whether or not an elected official is advancing an issue or voting on a bill based on what's good for the country or what's good for their own personal financial interests, she added. Uh, she's a, Warren's always kind of been one of those people that uh, badmouths like these big corporations and stuff, but all these people get their re-election campaigns paid for, you know, and I don't know if they're involved in the stock market or not because the article doesn't say, but that, I mean, if they're truly coming out against it, then I guess that's a good thing, but I don't know. Um, so I guess kind of to go along with that one, here's another thing about BlackRock. So they're a big uh, hedge fund manager, whatever the heck they are. Um, this one kind of goes along with the World Economic Forum, the ESG stuff. So this article from December 18th says BlackRock wants companies to hire more diverse board members, strive toward net zero climate goal. Um, let's see, let's go on here. BlackRock wants more diversity in company executive boards and is pushing portfolio companies to strive toward net zero climate goals. Even as the world's largest asset manager remains firmly invested in fossil fuels, according to a 2022 policy update released on December 14th, quote, we have engaged companies on board diversity for many years. That engagement informs our voting guidelines for 2022. The statement reads. For example, in the U.S., we believe boards should aspire to 30% diversity of membership and encourage companies to have at least two directors on their board who identify as female and at least one who identifies as a member of an underrepresented group. So here we are again with the, it doesn't matter if you're good enough to do the job, we just got to fill this spot with one of these other minorities or a woman's spot or whatever, you know, we don't care if you can do the job, basically. Uh, the New York-based investment company managing assets all over the world to the tune of $9.46 trillion has followed the steps of other big-name investors in persuading companies in their portfolios to comply with progressive guidelines on climate change, hiring, and governance. So there's your E, S, and G. Climate change, environmental, hiring, social justice, and governance. 
ESG. Earlier this month, Goldman Sachs Asset Management announced that it wants companies in which it has invested to have boards with at least 10% female directors and one director from an underrepresented group. If companies don't comply, Goldman Sachs will cast proxy votes against those nominated by the board. BlackRock hasn't specified whether it will take similar retaliatory actions. Specific demographic data upon which investment companies such as BlackRock and Goldman Sachs base their policies is now readily available. This data collection, especially in the United States, is likely to keep on growing, according to a BlackRock spokesperson. Underrepresented people can include people with disabilities, veterans, ethnic or racial minorities, and those who identify as LGBTQ. Investment companies are citing rising expectations from shareholders, employees, and customers for the change in policies, although a business survey by advisory firm Brunswick Group shows an increasing number of U.S. consumers want executives to stay out of social issues and simply focus on their businesses. Uh, I can agree with that. The latest policy update states that BlackRock encourages companies to demonstrate that their plans are resilient under likely decarbonization pathways and the global aspiration to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. However, Chief Executive Larry Fink, total virtual audience at the MIT Golub Center for Finance and Policy's eighth annual conference that he believes that BlackRock must remain invested in coal. Oh, those dirty bastards. Keep in mind, if a foundation or an insurance company or a pension fund says, I'm not going to own any hydrocarbons, well, somebody else is, so you're not changing the world, he said. According to activist groups Urgewald and Reclaim Finance, BlackRock has invested about $85 billion in coal-related assets. BlackRock operates in 38 countries with more than 16,000 employees. The company has faced criticism for its anti-competitive behavior and its broad investments in China. Based on 2021 data from Spencer Stewart, 47% of new independent directors in S&P 500 companies are black, Hispanic, Native American, Asian, or multiracial, compared to 21% for existing directors. 43% of all new directors were women, compared to 47% in 2020, and 30% existing female directors. Now, and I don't have a problem with any of that if... Those individuals can do the job they're supposed to be doing, not just because of their their color, their skin, or whatever they identify as. It's like, why do you just find somebody that's mediocre and throw them in a high power position? And say, oh, look at us! We're doing we're doing all this good stuff for the world, and a lot of these companies fall apart because the person doesn't know how to do the job. I mean, I could be wrong, but. Probably not. And in other news, going along with ESG, so environmental, there, I don't know if you heard about it, but last week, uh, there was some pretty bad tornadoes back east. Um, But this story talks about the refute that claims linking deadly tornadoes to climate change. And this is from experts so (laughs) i guess we'll see where it goes uh so this was from december 15th experts refute claims linking deadly tornadoes to climate change experts have pushed back against claims that this weekend's tragic tornadoes in kentucky illinois missouri arkansas and tennessee can be clearly linked to man-made climate change 
In an exclusive interview with the Epoch Times, professor and climate economist Richard S.J. Toll of the University of Sussex explained why it is so difficult to connect weather events on the scale of a tornado to shifts in the Earth's climate. Quote, tornadoes are small, rarely more than three kilometers in diameter. The most advanced climate models, however, cannot see things that are smaller than nine by nine kilometers. Climate models can therefore tell us very little about tornadoes, he told the Epic Times via email. Data are not great, but suggest that there is no upward or downward trend in tornado frequency or severity, he added. Well, you wouldn't know that if you watched the news or listened to the White House. Um, over the weekend, President Biden speculated that climate change had some impact on the massive storms, which have claimed at least 74 lives so far. Quote, all I know is that the intensity of the weather across the board has some impacts as a consequences of the warming of the planet and climate change, Biden said. According to reporting from Fox News, uh, quote, the specific impact on these specific storms, I can't say at this point. Um, he also said, the fact is that we all know everything is more intense when the climate is warming. Everything. And obviously it has some impact here, but I can't give you quantitative re read on that, he later added. It's because all the climate models that they've been, you know, talking this doomsday stuff really haven't come true. So, you know, they just got to throw out a bunch of garbage and hope people just sit there and take it, take it to heart and live it. Uh, the rush to attribute the tornadoes to climate change illustrates perfectly the political distortion of the topic. Climate economist and University of Gulf professor... Gulf, G-U-E-L-P-H, Gulf, Professor Ross McKittrick told the Epic Times via email in another exclusive interview. The IPCC AR6 makes no attribution claims between greenhouse gases and tornadoes, and the long-term data show no increasing trend in numbers or severity. Indeed, there is a slight decrease in numbers. He added, referring to the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report on the physical science basis for climate change. Yet the public has been so primed by politicians and activists to blame extreme weather on greenhouse gases, they hardly blink when someone like President Biden just makes up the connection. On December 13th, article from the Washington Post claimed that tornadoes have become more frequent in recent decades, citing data from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, that they said it illustrated tornadoes in the United States are becoming more frequent. Um, the NOAA is also a government program that is uh, funded by the government. So, you know, if this is the crisis scenario, they're going to go along with it no matter what the, the data will tell them. Um, responding to that article on Twitter, University of Colorado environmental science professor Roger Pilt Jr. described a figure from the article as incredibly misleading. Uh, probably don't get the fact checkers calling any of that misleading or missing context. <laughs> uh, pointed out that the rollout of Doppler radar systems increased reporting of very weak tornadoes in more recent years. Like McKittrick, he noted that the IPCC has not found that tornadoes are clearly linked to climate change. Kittrick, who recently questioned a key statistical approach used to link greenhouse gases to climate change, wonders why some researchers only ever look at potential downsides of any changes to the Earth's climate. 
Now, the alarmists are shifting to a claim that while the events are natural, greenhouse gases make them worse than they otherwise would be, he told the Epic Times. Aside from the questionable statistical analysis behind such arguments, the big problem is that it's ambulance chasing. The fact that they only ever associate greenhouse gases with bad weather outcomes is meaningless since they only ever look at bad weather events. They never study whether a stretch of mild weather could be attributed to greenhouse gases. Uh, And that's the problem I see with all this climate change hysteria is they don't plug in all of the details. I mean, it seems like a lot of these storms are a lot stronger than they used to be because you got to you got to factor in that in some of these areas your population has grown over the decades where before a tornado probably went through just wiped out a couple fields because there wasn't homes and businesses built in those zones so it looks like they're worse because there's going to be more structure damage because those things used to not be there once upon a time. And if you don't calculate in all that stuff, like I say, I mean, it makes, it makes good headstones. You know, what, what is it? The, uh, uh, if it, if it bleeds, it leads, I think is what they try and use, you know, and it's, it's essentially just manipulation, um, on the masses. Basically there's so much stuff that they don't tell you, I guess, selectively don't tell you, Um, so you can't, unless you do the research, uh, read through a lot of different points from both sides and kind of try and put stuff in logical perspective, then you start understanding why a lot of the stuff they've predicted has never come true because they're only looking at the side they want to see. And I'm not like, like I've stated many times before, it's not that we don't need to come up with ways to make our air cleaner. And our water cleaner and, you know, just the everyday things we need to live off. But, you know, the more CO2 we've put into the air, NASA has actually shown that the earth has gotten greener because what do green plants use as food? CO2. So, uh, you know, another thing they use, I mean, I've seen a bunch of new commercials now for the World Wildlife Federation, you know, save the polar bears. They're dying off. They're going to be extinct if we don't do something. It's a big money scam. Uh, Actual polar bear experts and scientists say they're doing just fine. Because guess what? Even though the ice is receding, the bears recede with the ice. And so does the food. Because especially if they eat eat seals or whales that wash up on shore or wherever the you know, they're at, the shoreline becomes farther inland. And to me, I mean, I'd I'd, I'd gone to Alaska, I don't know, a while back, and we decided while we were up there, we went to a, a glacier where they have, you know, the National Forest people or whatever there, and you could walk in there and walk up to the glacier. You know, it's it's back in there a little ways, so it's a little hike to it. But if you look down through the valley, there's signs that say this is where the glacier was and at what date. So I mean, it's realistically, I mean, for a hundred years, you know, they've got signs that show the breakdown of how far, you know, and what year 
that thing's been receding. So these things have been receding way before we've ever had this, you know, climate catastrophe of CO2 in the atmosphere, according to them. So it's like an ice cube. The, the smaller the ice cube gets, the faster it'll melt because the mass isn't there. So to me, it seems like these, you know, masses of ice are melting faster because the volume, you know, they've been slowly shrinking anyways. So once it starts getting smaller and smaller, it doesn't take much heat to make it start melting faster. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a scientist, but that's kind of what logically seems to be happening to me. And, you know, and eventually we're on a planet that's already 70% water. So if there's a cycle, if that's really what happens, you know, uh, through a longer term of years, you know, way, way longer than what one of our lifespans is going to be. And I think this is what really these climate alarmists have figured out is that most people haven't been alive very long. So if they just change the narrative and just keep pushing that narrative, most people don't know weather history and they won't take the time to go and look it up either. So they could just look, you know, oh, the, you know, they're saying this and it's they're scientists and they're experts. So it must be true. When real in reality, it's just them pushing a narrative. You know, like I say, I think there's things that are just going to no matter if we just completely quit driving gas combustion engines, gas and diesel. The only thing we're really going to notice right off the bat is going to be how much the air clears up for us to breathe, which would be a good thing. But at the same time, you're going to collapse your economy because so much stuff is created from the fossil fuel industry. I mean, that we use in our everyday lives. And unless people are willing to basically essentially go back to horse and carriage, the old school Western days, uh, this thing isn't going away. I mean, eventually, I, I think we'll probably, you know, work our way over to EV vehicles one way or the other. But, you know, it's not going to be in my lifetime, I don't think. Uh, one thing, they're too expensive. And the lifespan of the batteries, I think, are only like 10 years and they're ginormous. Uh, but luckily there are companies working on the recycling process of these batteries. So that's a good thing because we know for the most part, what happens with a lot of these things that are supposed to be green, they end up getting buried in the dirt somewhere and they'll probably be there forever. So, you know, out of sight, out of mind, as long as nobody can see it, it's not happening, right? <laughs> Uh, so what else we got here? Hmm. Oh, yeah. So we're going to go to the Omicron stuff here. So this one says Omicron forces wave of closures nationwide as White House warns winter of death is coming. This one's kind of interesting. And then I'll I'll do this one and then we'll go into another article about the supply chain stuff. Uh, So. 
The Omicron variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 has sparked a wave of closures across the United States in recent, recent days, including schools and businesses, as the White House is warning of a winter of severe illness and death for individuals who are unvaccinated. Now, take that word, unvaccinated. Put that in your brain. Because this the actual science and data is not showing that. Um, okay, article goes on. For the unvaccinated, you're looking at a winter of severe illness and death for yourselves, your families, and the hospitals you may soon overwhelm. White House COVID-19 coordinator Jeff Zintz said during a briefing. He then encouraged people to get vaccinated or receive boosters if they're eligible. So far, few Omicron-related deaths have been officially confirmed worldwide, and it's not clear if any have been reported in the United States. The United Kingdom reported the first known death with Omicron, with Omicron, while the UK Health Security Agency, in a December 18th update, reported seven deaths so far, Also, although scant details have been provided. Now, the wording there, with so they're testing people that die and saying it's covid and that's the thing that pisses me off because we're not being told the truth did they die from the covid or did they just die with covid because that makes a huge difference in your scare tactics and it irritates the crap out of me that they keep pushing this, oh, COVID deaths are up. They're counting this person here. They died in a car wreck, tested their blood or whatever, and they had had COVID in their system. So they're now statistically a COVID death. And it's deceiving. Um, now across the United States and a growing number of municipalities, schools are again starting to shift to remote learning, which we all know sucks. Events are being canceled and restaurants are shuttering their doors due to Omicron. Harvard University, Stanford University, and Cornell University, which will all have exceptionally high vaccination rates, and others have announced they would shut their campuses due to a spike in cases over the past week. Cornell shut down its Ithaca, New York campus, and moved to alert level red. Uh, Cornell officials reported some 900 COVID-19 cases in the past week, with many being the Omicron variant. The school has a 99% vaccination rate. Well, if they're vaccinated, aren't we being told that you, if you're vaccinated, you won't catch this? Or if you do, it'll be super mild? Hmm. Anyways, virtually every case of the Omicron variant to date has been found in fully vaccinated students, a portion of whom had also received a booster shot. Vice President for University Relations Joel Molina said in a statement, COVID-19 is the illness caused by the CCP virus. Oh, I don't know why they threw that in there. I think everybody knows that by now. At Harvard and Stanford, remote learning will start in the spring 2022 semester for most students. Pennsylvania State University announced on December 18th that students should be prepared to alter plans should the college have to start the spring semester remotely. Public schools across the country, including elementary and high schools, also have begun to move to remote learning models, which have been long criticized by parents' groups as being ineffective. Which they are. Because kids, when they're home, don't want to do schoolwork. <laughs> 
Prince George's County Public Schools, located near Washington, D.C., said last week that students will move to a virtual learning format until the middle of next month due to an uptick in countywide COVID-19 cases. On December 15th, three Prince George County schools were forced to shutter due to the virus. So, like I say, these are Democrat-ran areas. Um, And unfortunately, a lot of these teacher unions are pushing this too. Um, And supposedly, you know, even in like South Africa where this Omicron variant was discovered, not that that's where it originated from, um, their cases have all been mild. Uh, No hospitalization, stuff like that. And so they're they're wondering why everybody's kind of blaming this on South Africa when it was more than likely brought there from visitors from other places. And then, you know, they were just the first ones to isolate this strain. Uh, so really, really misrepresentative of what this virus, you know, really is. It didn't come from South Africa, more than likely. It's just another variant of the same thing. And as far as I've understood that this, these variants keep getting weaker and weaker until they get to a sustainable, um, I guess, virus that can transmit really easily and rapidly more like a common cold, but the symptoms are more mild. But, you know, that doesn't go into the scare tactics, so, uh... The Oswego City School District in New York State announced that the district would be moving to virtual instruction starting December 17th and lasting until December 23rd over a rapid spread of COVID-19. So see, there it is. It's it's spreading easily. It's easily transmissible. But like I say, it's really mild symptoms as far as most reports have come in. Uh, in a similar statement, the Evanston Township High School in Illinois said it would implement an adaptive pause from December 17th to December 23rd, in which students will transition to e-learning during this period. Meanwhile, the New York City Department of Education, the largest in the United States, dismissed speculation that it would shut its entire system in a statement issued December 17th. First Deputy Chancellor Donald Conyers said that currently there is no plan for a system-wide school closure, according to the New York Daily News. While the World Health Organization, which received criticism for naming the new strain Omicron, while skipping two letters of the Greek alphabet, Nu and Z, warned on December 17th that the variant spread doubles at a rate of once every one and a half to three days, a faster pace than previous, previous variants. It's unclear if it causes more severe sim- disease or symptoms. It's unclear. <laughs> uh, South Africa's Health Minister Joe Fala said late last week that the hospitalization rate from Omicron is about one-tenth that of the Delta variant. Previously, top-level medical authorities in the country said the variant appears to present milder symptoms than the Delta or Alpha variants. Only 1.7% of identified COVID-19 cases led to hospitalization in the next two er, in the two weeks since South Africa declared a fourth wave, Fala said during a press briefing. That's down from about 19% at a comparable point when the Delta variant was surging, he remarked. South Africa has a younger population than places such as Europe and the United States and also has a much lower vaccination rate than either the United States or Europe. Hmm, that's weird. Quote, a lot of initial reports are that people with Omicron tend to have milder disease. 
but it doesn't mean that it's not dangerous. Dr. Maria Van Kerhove, an infectious disease epidemiologist with the WHO, told reporters on December 16th, that doesn't mean that it's only mild. Got to throw that in there. Because, once again, we don't know until it's widespread enough that you can get some data on it. But, uh, you know what, I'm not a... I'm not a smart person. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Winter of death. But we also, I'm also going to touch on this one about the quarantine camps in Australia. So I'm going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Positive for COVID. She merely came into contact with someone who did. That was enough to land her in quarantine camp. You've got to question, is this really about people's health? What will it take to steer things in a healthier direction? Hello and welcome to The Wide Angle. I'm Brendan Fallon. Today I'm joined by veteran investigative journalist Lee Smith. Lee writes for both the Epoch Times and the Tablet. Today we talk about what may well be the underlying motives of COVID restrictions, the impact across society, and what could turn things in a healthier direction. All right, that was just the first part of this. I have a video with it here on the Epic Times. Uh, I don't know, the app, I guess. That's where I get a lot of these stories from. And the reason I use the Epic Times is because it seems like they actually have investigative reporters that are trying to find out the truth versus just media shenanigans, I guess. So I'm just going to read through the the article. It might take just as long as the video was, but... Uh, I guess if you're interested, it's the quarantine camps in Australia, COVID policy, media causing feelings of hopelessness, division, social isolation, uh, featuring Lee Smith. That's the doctor expert or whoever he's talking about. So we'll just go through the article. Quote, imagine that phrase. A woman in a camp in Australia is being detained. That in itself tells you where you are says investigative journalist Lee Smith, commenting on the alleged detention of a woman in Darwin, Australia, in a so-called quarantine facility without a positive COVID-19 result. Uh, Let's see, so this one, okay, that's got some weird stuff there that pretty much was talking about the movie, or their, whatever it is. Okay, I'm going to skip that part. Uh, In Darwin, Haley Hodgkin, Hodgson's license plate was tracked via video surveillance after visiting a friend diagnosed with COVID-19. She was subsequently detained for two weeks in a quarantine camp. At this point, you can't help but question whether certain so-called safety measures are really about public health, alongside what government, media, and corporations are doing. How have we added to our social isolation, and how do we reverse the trend? Oh, I guess this one only gives us a, a video. So, all right, I guess I'll just go back to it and let you hear it because it makes a really good point that just because this girl was in contact, and this is happening not to just her but other people as well, that they're getting essentially detained and sent to these camps just for being around somebody that po- tested positive or if you tested positive. So you tell me why that makes sense. If you tested positive, you're putting all these positive patients in the same area with people that have only been exposed and do not have it. Uh, yeah, like I say, makes no sense. You can click on the link in the chat or the comments to subscribe to my newsletter. This way you won't miss new episodes. 
So, Lee, last time we talked about, we were talking a little bit about the media. We're talking about how the, the power that the media has to really influence public perception, how it can um, really create reality for people, for a lot of people who, who watch mainstream media. Aside from that, we were talking about how people come away from watching the news, um, different mainstream media programs, often feeling quite negative, and it, it, it has this kind of demoralization effect. And um, you were talking about like two other D words that are kind of part of a suite of um, kind of direction we're being steered into feel. Do you want to kind of put that in a nutshell for our audience? Yeah, a suite of, uh, is, is a very nice way to put it. Um, yeah, I, I, first of all, there's demoralization, there's division, and then there's desecration. And, and, and it, it, it is very peculiar when you, when, when you stop to think about it. Why do we continue to turn and uh, tune in every night to news which is intent, uh, intended to demoralize us, right? I mean, I, I'm not saying that there should only be happy news, the kind of stuff that you know makes us smile or the feel-good news about a, a cat returning home after wandering for two years in the desert and then shows up uh, back at home and, and everyone is happy. But look, a lot of this and a lot of the information that we get now from news, whether it's broadcast or print, is intended to demoralize us. And we see that this campaign, it, it, it's, I mean, we saw this again, as we spoke about last time, uh, about Russiagate, but we're seeing it now profoundly uh, in a sense, even more so than Russiagate, since this affects much of the world's population in a way that Russiagate affected affected America. But when we're talking about the different COVID regulations and the way that the uh, news media is projecting these issues, this affects billions of people, not hundreds of million, not just hundreds of millions in the United States, but billions of people around the world. If you remember Orwell in the novel 1984, they have the, the two minutes of hate. Yeah. It's quite pivotal to their control of the population. They expose mm -hmm. them to two minutes of hate where they're, they're shown this person who they've created as a villain and they have to direct their, their hate towards this person for two minutes. And this kind of riles up the audience and yeah. uh, into this frenzy of, uh, of emotion, um, which kind of cancels out their rationality and I guess makes them more susceptible to, to being told what to do and being fed a certain perspective of the world. And I kind of think about the kind of messaging we're getting, you know, like um, like President Biden, he said, we've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin and your refusal has cost us all. Another example from de Blasio, this was for um, pushing a, a mandate on private sector workers. We have decided to use a preemptive strike to really do something bold to stop the further growth of COVID. So it's, it's kind of framing these guys as the heroes They're you know, they're fighting a battle. And um, mandating vaccines for all workers will make it harder for them to avoid getting the jab. Like these are these are people who are just kind of being a nuisance, you know? Yeah, I mean that language. I mean, especially the the, the first quote you had from Biden, which I guess is, is from a couple of months now, where patience is is running thin. I mean, this is hostile language. You know, uh, this is saying that we. It's not that we govern by your consent. It's saying we rule you. And we are tired of what you're doing. And now we're going to take further control of your lives. And, and this is, you know, you mentioned Orwell. And of course, the two minutes of hate is famous. And, and, and what's been fascinating is that we, not just now, but we've seen this replayed, uh, replayed throughout the 20th century. 
even after the, the horrors of, of national socialism and the horrors of the Soviet Union. I mean, as, 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 as you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in the Middle East, and this is one of the methods, this is one of the tried and true methods of, of illegitimate regimes. This is one of the, the signs of an illegitimate regime to turn on, to uh, create enemies to be able to hold together a population who doubts the legitimacy of the regime. The one that comes to mind most clearly is the, is the Syrian regime, which since the same Assad regime, uh, first Hafez al-Assad, then Bashar al-Assad, since 1970, they've had to project Israel as the most dangerous enemy. And this is why you must hold together as fellow Syrians, because the Israelis will will come to get us and they're an occupying, colonializing, uh, imperial, imperial regime that wants to take our land and take our water and that wants to kill us all. Well, of course, none of this is true. What you're just saying, Lee, it kind of brings to mind a, a second function of this, uh, which is, I think, distraction. You know, it really, it, it takes yeah. people's minds away from the, the corruption or the, the incompetence right. of the, the regime in power. Absolutely distraction deflection so we've we've got it's it's a larger suite of d's than than we thought but absolutely this is what they will do and this is what the biden regime is 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 doing as well right now distracting and deflecting from its own incompetence uh, and its fears of whether or not it is legitimate and I, I think there's something else going on here too which is something that that brendan you and i speak about all the time with the chinese communist party hovering in the background I think that in a way, American policy, American policymakers, the corporate and political establishment are trying to deflect something very important and very gruesome, their participation in a profound crime, right? If we look at the amount of people who have made money, our corporate and political elite, their center of gravity is the Chinese Communist Party. <laughs> and you look at the amount of money that they have made with the Chinese Communist Party, on account of what? On account of on account of slave labor, on account of their uh, cruel and torturous activities. Whether it's targeting Falun Gong, whether it's targeting Tibetans, uh, whether it's targeting Hong Kong dissidents, and so the idea that American policymakers that uh, the American corporate establishment has participated in this a profound crime. So that's another thing that they're deflecting from. This is one of the things I think we're seeing right now with the lockdowns. They're acting like the CCP, like the Communist Party regime, because they're covering up their involvement in these profound crimes. In terms of a really compelling example of the Chinese Communist Party traits kind of coming through in Darwin in Australia, this woman recently been in the news, uh, Haley Hodgson, uh, she ended up at one of the, the quarantine camps there in Darwin. Yeah. And she was never diagnosed with COVID. She came into contact with someone who was diagnosed with COVID. She was picked up by Darwin surveillance technology. They found her license plate number on her scooter, then tracked her down and she got nervous. She didn't want to tell them. She told them that she had been tested and, and tested negative because she was nervous, a bit panicked by people coming to her house. And yeah. um, understandably. understandably. And um, then she got another call saying, oh, we, we checked our government database and you didn't show up as having a test. So um, we're going we're gonna to send some people around to test you. They didn't send people around to test her. The two police then came around and, and took her to the quarantine camp. And um, while she was there and, and being she was being regularly tested, she still didn't test positive for COVID, but she inquired 
from the, the equivalent of the, the CDC there why she was being held. And, and the indication apparently that they gave her is this is punishment because you lied to the authority. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you and I are, are certainly not the first ones to point out that the COVID, the global COVID regime is not primarily about public health. We have more and more evidence of this every day. Uh, once we're talking about a fourth booster shot, then it's pretty clear that whoever was selling the idea that these vaccines were nearly perfect and uh, nearly 100% efficient was talking out of their hat, right? So this is not about public health. Um, it's, it's, people are right when they talk about it in terms of, uh, in terms of building power, in terms of, in terms of authoritarianism, in terms of totalitarianism. But I think there are other things that are going on here too, which are interesting. I, I, I do think that there is a larger move here. Um, there is a larger move here to obscure different things that are going on. And one of the quite clear things that's going on is the, um, is the disgusting relationship between political officials and between corporations. I mean, it's quite clear why we're seeing mandates and why they're demanding uh, a second uh, booster shots, the fourth shot. We'll move into the fifth. We'll move into the sixth. It might be a yearly subscription. It might be uh, twice a year. It might turn into a monthly subscription. So it's fascinating, actually, and it's very important the map that this is drawing and it's allowing us to see the different relationships and networks of power. In effect, political officials are out there, right? They are out there demanding these mandates on behalf of pharmaceutical companies, right? So this is very important for us to see and for us to understand what's going on here. Not to take anything away from, from what you were saying. I mean, the role of, um, of politicians, of, uh, of, of the elite groups in, yeah in kind of steering society in a certain direction. But I, I wonder to what extent is the individual kind of responsible for the situation and, and what, oh, how they've yeah. kind of been invested in it themselves over the year. You mentioned Orwell before, whether it's Animal Farm or 1984, and the idea that people don't recognize the typical moves of totalitarian regimes. You're right, it's up to different individuals to stand up and say, what the heck is going on here? But to come back to our uh, the idea of the campaign of demoralization, <laughs> division and desecration, one of the points is, is to make sure that people like you and me can't have the conversation that we're having now, right? Saying, wait a minute, I don't get it. This can't be about public health, right? Why, why is this 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 woman in, 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 in the camp in Australia, in the camp in Australia, I mean, imagine that phrase, a woman in a camp in Australia who's being detained. That in itself t tells you where you are. I can't believe I said it because I can't believe it's really happening. But she's asking the right questions. This makes no sense. Why can't I go here? And there is no reason behind it. So if people like you and me have this conversation, if people around the world get to have this conversation, well, this makes no sense. Why are they doing it, right? It's not hard to put it together. Yeah, the, the conversation is fundamental, and that's why autocracies uh, put so much focus on stifling communication, stifling yep. open communication. And I, getting back to what I was saying, like the, the idea yeah. that we are complicit, I think the individual is complicit to some degree in, in what's happening, yeah. because this is a trend towards self-isolation that I've seen happening for some time. You, if you just, you just go onto a bus, you go onto a train, yeah. 80 to 90% of the people sitting there are buried right. in their mobile phones. They're watching Netflix. They're, they're yes. shooting zombies. They're, 
having a stunted <laughs> conversation with someone, sending yeah. them emojis and uh, stunted sentences. Right. And it's humanity. Uh, people have kind of opted for the, the lowest form of communication, the easiest one that, that poses no risks, that yeah. has minimal requirements off them. I mean, how long ago was it? Was it just like 20, 30 years ago when, when people perhaps just maybe started up a conversation? It was common to do that with a, a stranger on a bus. Yeah. And um, right. maybe, it's up, maybe it's broaden their horizons a little bit. You're, you're right. They've, they've seen the enormous, um, the enormous chink in our armor. We have moved too far from the idea of community. We have moved too far from the idea of family. People just engaging each other. You see someone, uh, you see someone on the street, you pass, that, you pass them by, tip your hat, say, hey, beautiful day, isn't it? And just have a random conversation. You just get to talk to someone. I'm not talking about, you know, political programs where we have to get everyone together and everyone agree on this. Yeah, it's just normal human engagement. And this is one of the things. This is one of the targets of the campaign of desecration, to, um, to desecrate human relations, right, to keep people apart. Right. Instead of having people engage with each other. And of course, we know what it's done to we know what it's done to, to so many different families. We we know what it's done to so many different communities. And this is the real danger. It's not the COVID-19, the real illness, the real poison that's being injected is this campaign, again, trying to demoralize us. And that's what they're scared of. They're scared that people will start talking to each other again. They're scared that people will be reasonable. They're scared that people are gonna take off their masks and look at each other in the face again, look at each other in the eyes and see the smile. The human relationship, the transactional exchange between two people, what's the fundamental to our existence. If we lose that, then of course, we're going to be demoralized, and it's it's in human relationships that we have the potential to, to develop and grow. Uh, regardless of your, your spiritual identities, it's quite self-evident. Right. It's, it's um, the greatest joy we have, right? Getting to communicate with other people, getting to talk with other people, sometimes just a chance encounter. I mean, this is the greatest joy we have, other people. They say we're social animals, and indeed we are social animals. What have our uh, political and corporate elites done? They've gone after that very definition of what humanity is. So it's up to us. It's up to us as individuals, as friends, as neighbors, as strangers, to take that back, to reassert, to reassert our right to have a face, our right to smile in public. It's absolutely nuts, you know? Yeah, put, put the mask on your five-year-old and you can't get a hamburger here unless your five-year-old is vaccinated. Mo beat it, move on. I mean, I mean the, 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 the petty cruelties, that's the thing about this particular moment. It's not just the, 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 the large cruelties coming from the government and from pharmaceutical, uh, the pharmaceutical industry. This is the, pe the petty cruelties. And also, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, small but vital gestures of heroism too, right? It's like, come on in. We're going to make your whole family dinner. Don't worry about your, the vaccine mandates. Don't worry about the mask. Come in. This is your neighborhood. This is your restaurant too. This is your supermarket. Yeah, it's courageous to take that action. You, you risk yeah, losing your license. Absolutely. You risk losing your business. And, right. and so those, those people should really be applauded. One of the things about the a mask is, is that uh, it's inhuman. I mean, the mask is worn to conceal one's identity. The, again, all these di all of these different ideas that, that, that have come about over the last two years. Oh, yeah, we lock everyone down for public health reasons. No, you don't. You lock people down as a political instrument. 
as collective punishment. Oh yeah, we we wear masks as a public health instrument. No, no, no you don't. No one wears masks to to protect public health. People wear masks uh, to uh, you know to do to do bad things. Right. The idea right now that you have to walk into a liquor store with a mask is preposterous. Anyone who's grown up in this country knows what would usually happen if you walked into a liquor store wearing yeah. a mask. Right. It's like they're coming in to rob it. Grab the shotgun. You know, absolutely. Or, or walking into a bank. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Every, every right. Everyone, everyone in line must be wearing a mask before you walk up to the teller. You have to put your mask on. Are we really fostering security here? Are we really yeah. fostering safety? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, then, will this live on after the uh, after the end of the pandemic? Should the pandemic ever end? Will people be compared? What, what about? Can I just wear this black stocking over my head and wait in line at the bank here? Lee, always a pleasure. I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Brendan, great to speak with you. Have a fantastic week. That was my look with Lee Smith at the demoralizing, divisive, and desecrating potential of COVID restriction measures. That's it for this edition of The Wide Angle. I invite you to like the video and subscribe. You can also subscribe to my newsletter at the top of the live chat or comment section to make sure you catch the next episode. We'll see you next time. She didn't test positive. So there you go. That was the uh, the Epic Times video that they had on there. I thought they had an article, but uh, hopefully that makes sense in the way they were talking about that. I mean, it's like we're seeing this all the way around the world. Um, some places, you know, especially here in the States, more red states have, you know, course corrected. You know, when we first started out, I think we all kind of universally agreed. It's like, OK, let's see what this, you know covid things all about and it's been what almost two years now that this thing's been out we've if you ask me the one thing we have noticed is that it's getting weaker uh but it's you know spreading faster like i say it should get to a point where it's weak enough that it'll just be like you're catching a cold again and that's going to be kind of its lasting form that's going to be with us forever uh i think that's just the reality of it um but i mean australia what the hell <laughs> uh we're creating these camps i don't know i mean if anybody knows anything about history what happens when uh, governments start forming camps that uh you know they don't like you know what you're doing or, you know, basically control your lifestyle these days. And you got to follow the authoritarians. But anyways, I'm going to take a quick break here. When we come back, I'm going to go through one more article to end the show about the supply chain um, predictions, I guess, for next year. Not to, you know, end on a low note, but I guess that's going to be kind of how it lined up today. So we'll be back in just a moment. All right, we're back. And uh, I guess looking at this article, it's another one of these uh, videos. It's about 25 minutes long, but I think they will be able to explain it better than me. So here we go. I really see the numbers and, and the, the concerns and the damage. Uh, but I, I fear that we're going to look at this well into 2022 for small businesses. And they're really going to feel this, not just 
a little bit during the holidays, but well into that. According to the latest survey done by the National Federation of Independent Business, almost half of businesses are significantly impacted by the supply chain disruptions as over 90 ships are waiting at the ports of Los Angeles. We are seeing the problems of a number of regulations and log jams that our policymakers have an opportunity to really fix, but they're just not doing it as quickly as they need to. My guest today is John Kabatak, California State Director for NFIB. Today, he discusses how the congestion at the ports will impact the broader economy and why California State needs to do more. So we're urging our policymakers to open those ports, do what they can now, and declare a state of emergency, which it should be. I'm Siamai Korami. Welcome to California Insider. Thank you. So great to be back. Love the Epic Times. Thank you for that. And we want to talk to you about the ports and the impact on small businesses, mm -hmm. businesses in general in California. There are delays at the port. There are ships waiting. People are not getting, businesses are complaining that they're not actually getting the, the products that they need to sell. How has this impacted the businesses? Well, it's it's been a severe impact. I think we're starting to really see the numbers and, and the, the concerns and the damage. Uh, but I, I fear that we're going to look at this well into 2022 for small businesses. And they're really going to feel this, not just a little bit during the holidays, but well into that. Uh, it's important to remember, you know, um, California is the beacon of ports, right? You know, here in Los Angeles and Long Beach ports um, are the two largest ports for processing in the nation. They process about 40% of all containers that make it to the Western shore, to the shores of the United States, actually. Um, and uh, yet, you know, we're, and that's think, frankly, three times more than any other state we're seeing. Um, between 2010 and today, we have seen just those two ports alone process about 211 million containers over this period of time. Three, again, three times more than any other state in the nation. So very significant here. These two ports alone are so important to be opened, to get that stuff to market, to get that stuff to small businesses and to any business, but most importantly, to make sure that consumers can get what they need. And, and we're not just talking toys during the holidays we're talking more importantly important supplies you know food medical supplies things that really seniors and those at hospitals and others need so it's very important i think right now we're seeing uh, some of the the effects on small business for sure but i my, my concern and my fear is that well into next year at least the first part of next year we're going to really feel a lot of this so we're, we're urging our policymakers to open those ports do what they can now and declare a state of emergency, which it should be. And how is it impacting the small businesses? Is it that they don't get the items or customers are not ordering because there's delays or? It's a combination of things. You know, first of all, we have the clogging itself, right? We have uh, cargo ships that are offshore that is just physically, you know, logistically just not making it to shore and getting on land and into those stores. So that's a big problem. But then on top of that, we are seeing the problems of a number of regulations uh, and log jams 
that our policymakers have an opportunity to really fix, but they're just not doing it as quickly as they need to. Uh, we have problems at the ports uh, with uh, the challenges of overregulation with warehouses, distribution centers, uh, with these truckers who really need to have more flexibility in what they do. So it's it's, it's you can't put your finger on one thing and say it's all these ships offshore and we got to get them in. It's it's getting them here, but we need our policymakers can really make a difference by not just unclogging that big pipe pipeline, but making sure that we're getting that stuff done and we're doing it in a way that helps businesses and consumers get what they need faster. And they can do that pr pretty quickly. Now, some people wonder, is this a trucking issue? Is this a chassis shortage? There's, there's, we've talked to some experts and different experts are telling us different things and uh, everybody's pointing fingers at other people. So. Uh, what are your thoughts of this of the root cause? We know that the supply increased. We know that there's more ships coming, 20% more ships coming to these ports. Um, what are some other components that you guys have seen? Sure. And I would tell you, you know, the National Federation of Independent Business, where I serve as the California director, we represent about 14,000 small businesses here, about 350,000 nationwide. And we talk to a lot of these small businesses and they're very, very concerned. Um, every, uh, we do a, a regular survey and we've been doing surveys of COVID uh, issues. And actually uh, our most recent survey found that 50%, about 50% of the small business members we have feel that supply chain disruptions are have been a big problem, are a significant issue. And about 50% also made it very clear that, that this is deeply affecting their sales, their sales already. What we also found was about, uh, in terms of where they're prognosticating this, we were talking about timeline. Uh, I think we found that about 62% of the small business owners have said that um, this has been a problem that's gotten worse over the past three months through the end, pretty much through the end of 2021. About 72% have told us that they anticipate this being a problem well into next year for another six months. Um, but the problem is really, you know, when we're talking about the, you know, the issue of truckers and things, it's no different than what we're talking to the average small business owners, what they're facing on Main Street right now. And that is the trucking companies and the truckers. There is a big challenge with trying to find qualified labor. There is a labor shortage, even in the trucking industry right now that we are finding. So uh, I know we talked to the trucking association and others, but also NFIB members who have trucking companies. It's very challenging for them. Um, I think uh, we are also wanting to make sure that um, that the that there's more independent contractor flexibility with truckers because we need that right now because um, it's very difficult to ask a lot of these folks to stop their trucks um, to have to be so stringent by the guidelines here that they can't get that stuff into Los Angeles into the Riverside into Sacramento we need to make sure that there's that our policymakers are loosening those not be creating reckless laws they're basically making sure that we're getting, giving those truckers and our delivery professionals a chance to get that stuff once they get to the docks over to those small businesses. So there's an opportunity to do that. And I think that we can act on that. Now, are the independent contractors, there was a law, AB5, that passed in California that's kind of banning certain industries, independent contractors to to work in certain industries in California. Is it uh, including the trucking companies? We have been told that truckers, independent truckers are allowed to go to the port. 
Well, they are, but I think, you know, the NFIB joined uh, the California Business Roundtable, California Restaurant Association, Trucking Association, a number of others, uh, about all pretty much about 50 to 55 of the leading statewide and regional business groups and sent a letter to the governor urging him to do a number of things in addition to declaring a state of emergency at our ports, again, which hasn't been done, which needs to be done. But we did urge the governor and policymakers to suspend AB5 and that the trucking industry, much to maybe what you may be hearing, we are hearing and understanding that that some more flexibility with that law would actually give a number of truckers, but also delivery professionals, local couriers, messengers, delivery services, more flexibility. Uh, the, the, the law AB5 created such stringent guidelines for what the, the, that they must be employees uh, versus independent contractors, but there's so many um, guardrails around that that are hampering and frankly hamstringing the ability to get that stuff out. So yes, um, I think there have been some provisions made for certain industries, but as we understand it, the trucking industry still very much has has a great dire need to give their truckers and to give independent contractor truckers more flexibility. Now, there is another component of this is the shipping companies. I guess they've yeah. been the most profitable out of this. Uh, they've raised their fees significantly, and now we're fining them. They were imposing a fine, but they took it away. Um, is there anybody looking at this whole problem holistically from all angles and seeing who are, what are the components and where are the clogging happening and how to solve it? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a combination of, of experts and leaders that really need to play at this. Certainly President Biden and the Congress need, you know, our, 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 our part and parcel, uh, transportation secretary, uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, basically even said recently that he's never seen a problem like this. Uh, Fed chairman, uh, Jerome Powell said that he's never seen a problem like this. And the transportation secretary said, this is gonna be a problem that's gonna persist for some time. I think when we're talking holistically, um, our federal leaders have an opportunity and really need to look at our transportation and our inter international commerce laws and rules to make sure that there is more flexibility. I think the president has taken some steps in, uh, in taking this more seriously, but it also lies very much with our state leaders here. Uh, again, I can't overemphasize enough how important it is that um, this be treated as a dire emergency and a state of emergency. Uh, when that happens, a lot of more resources can be opened up because it's really focused on the economic health, the community health, the jobs health, um, but also the, the, the physical, you know, human health. Um, so I, we hope Governor Newsom and our leaders would look at this and declare it as a state of emergency remove some of those very overburdensome regulations. Um, and on top of that, I think really make sure that they are um, uh, creating an opportunity for more things to get to the actual marketplace. And we need to make sure that that, on top of that, our leaders need to really uh, make sure that we are paving the way um, with highways and uh, you know travelways for these trucks to get there. Now, why do you think we haven't made this a state of emergency? It looks like it's a big deal. It looks like a lot of people are going to get impacted. Prices of goods might go up as a result of it. How come we haven't done that? 
It's a hard question to answer because I know that um, when when a state of emergency is declared, there are a number of state resources that um, you know are unleashed uh, much more aggressively and abundantly. Uh, it, it really has perplexed us in the business community why this hasn't been declared. Uh, I think that the governor and a good number in our legislature have um, looked at this, evaluated it, and in their own minds feel that this can be rectified. Uh, this is a federal issue um, that the, the President Biden and our federal leaders you know, are taking the measures that are needed and that the governor by executive order is taking the appropriate steps. We appreciate a number of the steps with the executive order to comport and comply with some federal laws and, and help there. But a, an, an emergency declared would, would really, just as we've seen uh, you know, I, I see this uh, as just as uh, desperate and dangerous as something that we would see with other natural occurrences, a state of emergency that was declared when we had the civil unrest in the early 19, 1990s, I almost said 1900s, uh, but in 1992 when we had the civil unrest in Los Angeles and Southern Cal, um, it's that dire. It's that serious. And unfortunately, um, just as I, see, I believe many Sacramento politicians do, it, until their back is up against the wall, and this is this is really a desperate, dangerous problem in our communities, healthcare, um, economics, and otherwise. Uh, they don't act. So um, again, I don't I don't believe that. I think we have yet to see the severe consequences and the scars of this until into twenty twenty two. And at that, I would hope that our leaders would would take it that seriously at that time. Well, anyways, I think we get the point there on what they're talking about, and not take up a whole half hour of listening to him talk about that so once again this is kind of one of the things that trump was trying to do in office and you know i think he passed like an executive order to basically stop all the ridiculous red tape that causes most businesses especially small businesses to waste a lot of time trying to comply with all this red tape and, you know, for small businesses, it costs them a lot of money to try and just be in compliance. So it was something like for every new uh, regulation, they had to get rid of two others or something like that, which makes sense. Because, I mean, the regulation, um, I mean, if you own a small business, and you, know, you know what I'm talking about. And it's not helping the overall, uh, I guess health of the country's economy and you know i can't say for sure that they're not just planning this it seems like a lot of blue states uh governors have been just trying to i mean especially with like california if you don't do the state of emergency and different things to you actually kind of proactively get these ports cleaned up and get these goods dispersed out through the states, you're controlling the supply chain there. And like I say, you know, the Port Authority is a federal agency, and there's just no urgency for this to be taken care of. So if you're not intentionally holding back on doing things that could, you know, speed this process up, uh, you're you're doing it intentionally, and I mean, so California is basically holding 
hostage people's goods by not doing anything to get this stuff distributed. I mean, that's how I look at it. You know, you got a lot of, like, New York, you know, and all these other blue states that are basically just going full authoritarian. You got to be jabbed. You got to show proof of your paperwork if you want to go to a restaurant or even participate in society. So it's it's our bad government within our government that is creating a lot of the problems we're seeing here in the States. I mean, obviously around the world, you know, like what's going on with Australia, but we've got to, I don't know how you fix this other, I mean, cause a lot of these progressives and liberals in these blue States keep electing these people over and over. I mean, how long's Nancy Pelosi been in office and she's horrible. But, you know, you can't, you know, we somehow can't get uh, term limits on the ballot, which I think would definitely help the states in a, in a lot of ways, you know, start getting fresh people in there, fresh ideas. I mean, it's still going to get skewed because you're always going to have big money pushing people that they think will basically help them out. I mean, that's just how it works because we can't get the, the big money out of elections as well. So, I mean, we got a lot of problems that could fix a lot of our problems in the states that just probably will never happen without public force, I would I would guess. But that's probably about all I'm going to go over today for this episode, this weekly episode. Um, I hope everybody's got their Christmas shopping done and was able to actually find the stuff on the shelves they were looking for. Um, some of this supply chain stuff, too, I think, is what's caused a lot of these big corporations like Amazon and a lot of these online places to explode because they've got everybody so scared to go out to stores and, you know, physically go buy it. Not so much here in Utah, but, you know, a lot of the blue states that it's just a mentality. I mean, they say this and you say how high. So, anyways... I don't see a whole lot of stuff changing anytime soon, even through 2022. Uh, they'll keep pushing the vaccine mandate as long as they can, even despite the evidence that it looks like the vaccines aren't protecting you from getting it. I mean, that's just the the state we're in right now. Uh, the breakthrough cases in most places that are really highly vaccinated, even though they want to claim it's the unvaccinated uh, the data's not showing that. <laughs> so anyways, hopefully everybody uh, has a good Christmas since that's coming up here in a few days. And uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again one more time before this year is over. And we will get back with that uh, next week for our weekly episode here at the Nielsen Show. Appreciate you listening. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. <music> Thank you.